Thanks for taking the time to check out this episode of Desert Island Goals. Video links to all the goals we're going to discuss in this podcast are in the description below, as well as social media profiles for myself, the podcast itself, and our guest. Please take the time to follow us all right now. There is a good chance there will be some strong language at some point during this podcast, just letting you know that ahead of time. And please take the time right now to give us a five-star review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Okay, welcome again to another edition of Desert Island Goals. I am your host, Callum Squires. Thank you very much for taking the time to check out this podcast. And joining me today is a very special guest, Kellen Reed. Kellen, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, doing great. It's uh, it's an honor to be on here with the one and only wow, Callum Squires. That's very kind of you. I figured we might get to a little bit of gentle ribbing of me fairly quickly, so I appreciate you doing that to start I come with. in peace, Cal. Um, I come in peace. <laughs> we'll see how long that peace lasts <laughs> as we go through these goals. Kellen, where are you originally from for people who, who haven't met you and don't know you before? And how did you first kind of become a football fan? Yeah, I am from the land of milk and honey known as Coppell, Texas, a little suburb outside of Dallas. Um, grew up there, uh, played soccer all across the DFW area against some of the most talented players, I'd say, in the, the youth pool here in the U.S. Um, and then, yeah, met Callum through Trinity University. And so I guess my, my intro into soccer, I don't even know. I mean, I think as a kid in America, you just kind of grow up playing every single sport you can, right? Played basketball, baseball, which I hated soccer football never like tackle football just you know playing outside in the neighborhood but yeah soccer was the one that kind of stuck probably helped that my dad was the coach as my like u5 jaguars coppel soccer association team and uh, i made sure that you were in the team then yeah 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 i got (laughs) special treatment you know took care of me made sure i was the starter and the captain every week no just kidding but yeah i think soccer was just kind of the one that stuck the most and I don't know, I guess as a kid, yeah, I just kind of came naturally. I wasn't a superstar athlete, but was pretty good with my feet. So, yeah, that was my intro to soccer and just kind of never looked back. I think it's really funny that, that I guess it's not, not a surprise necessarily, but the I guess the, the difference between, let's say, a kid growing up in the UK and a kid growing up in the US is that I feel like most kids in the US play soccer as their introduction to it. Whereas I feel like in the UK, obviously, at the time I was growing up in kind of the, the early 90s, soccer was far more prevalent initially in society. So I would watch soccer first mm-hmm. and then play it later, if that makes sense. And obviously, that's kind of flipped on its head for you where you're playing it and learning the game that way and then developing you know, a fandom for the sport as well. And obviously, I know, and the people are going to find out right now, that you're a massive diehard Liverpool fan. How did that yeah. come about? Was there a particular reason and, and why did you get drawn to Liverpool and when did you get drawn to Liverpool? It's a good question. I mean, like you said, I think growing up in America, you know, your introduction to soccer is playing it. And so it, it was probably really hard to watch soccer back in the day. I remember, and I think probably the way I fell in love with Liverpool was my man, Stevie G. Yeah, Steven Jared was, I don't know, just kind of my, my idol who I looked up to. And yeah, probably watching some games um, whenever I could. And then the highlights, I think 
was uh was what really kind of caught my attention and yeah going on youtube and just watching all his screamers um you know how could you not like that as a kid so that's ultimately what kind of drew me to liverpool you know when you're 12 13 14 whatever wasn't like a diehard liverpool fan they're also uh, not doing too great but i think yeah as i kind of grew up more and more and learned more about the club and kind of got more invested and was able to watch it more and more got a lot more serious about liverpool and went through some you know ups and downs with them um and ultimately you know one of the worst moments um as a fan seeing the slip which i'm not going to talk about anymore after this but yeah i mean i think there's just like a real emotional pull to to liverpool and nowadays with the club it's just kind of dreamland um and yeah i think ever since i don't know maybe i was nine or ten watching those first time volleys from stevie g just kind of stuck with me and just what it meant so yeah that's how uh became a liverpool fan and yeah i'll never trade that in for anything no, that's very fair. It's it's hard not to admire what Gerard achieved at Liverpool. What he did in carrying, at times, a very average team mm-hmm. around him to elite successes, not just domestically. Like they had, they didn't win the league, but they had success in the, in the FA Cup and and the the League Cup, now the Carabao Cup, and winning both major European trophies as well. With a cast of characters around him, who some of whom were good players and some of whom really weren't. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, give credit to to Gerard for what he was able to accomplish there. And I, I don't. I think it would take something special for anybody to ever eclipse Gerard in terms of Liverpool fandom. Like I, I can't, I yeah. can't foresee that. No, yeah, I think he he dragged that team to success. And as a captain, you know, I think there was so much weight on his shoulders and just that loyalty too. You know, I love that loyalty aspect of just kind of sticking with your boyhood club. Um, and yeah, I guess there were a lot of parallels. I saw that within myself with my Jaguars team at U5. There weren't a whole lot of great players. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he inspired me to drag that team to staying above the relegation zone in Coppell youth soccer. <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure that was a, a fine achievement at the time. I wanted to touch on briefly what you said about kind of the learning more about the club and the culture of that and you being drawn to that. I feel like in the States, there aren't really that many franchises that have kind of storied cultural histories, if that makes sense. Yeah. The one that springs to mind for me is the Green Bay Packers in the NFL because of the kind of fan ownership that they've had for a long time. They don't have a one owner. It's owned by you know the fans themselves. There's, a, there's people mm-hmm. in place, obviously, to run the club, but as an ownership, it's very much a community. And, you know, Liverpool has a strong history and the culture of the club based on some of the tragedies that have been around it and various other things. I just wondered if there was anything specific that really kind of stuck out to you in terms of the culture of the club that really drew you towards Liverpool and made you stick with them and grow more invested in them. Yeah, I think, like I said, just kind of watching those YouTube videos, I think the one that really stuck out to me was obviously the the final in Istanbul, right? When they get, when they're down three nil at halftime. And I just remember watching like a YouTube video of, um, it probably wasn't even from like an official highlight reel. It was just like, you know, one of those YouTube videos, like, Oh, look at this. And it was about, uh, the Liverpool fans singing, you'll never walk alone at halftime. And I don't know. I was just like, that's really cool to see. And like you said, like we don't see that in the, in the U S at all. Um, and so just that, 
attachment from the fans to the club, which, you know, every club has, right? But once I got introduced to that and then like going into some of the more historical things that have happened, you know, the highs and lows that the club have experienced, um, that's probably what what really made me feel like, oh, this is like a special club. You know, they obviously have a big history, big heritage, not as big as Real Madrid's, but getting there. Yeah, I think uh, just learning about that, obviously, I, I'm not, you know, someone who goes back to like the 30s or whatever, but, you know, having a little bit of context there and even still today, you know, trying to to learn more and more about it and just kind of consume as much as I can. It's uh, It's really an obsession and Tara probably hates it, but... You know, it is what it is. There's a really interesting thing about the fandom for Premier League clubs in the US that I found that, and it kind of is the same in the UK for NFL teams, if this makes sense. And what I mean by that is if you are a fan of the Premier League in the US, there's a high probability that you are very, very, very invested. It's not something that you follow half-heartedly, typically, I find. And maybe it's because I'm surrounded by soccer players and soccer people, but the people that I've met who have a team pretty much always have followed that team, you know, to a diehard extent. And it may not be the exact same fandom as in the UK. There's certain Americanisms that are inalienable and just don't exist in the UK. But in the same way in the UK, if you are an NFL fan, you know, you have to stay up till crazy o'clock at night to watch these games. And in the inverse, you know, the amount of times that I know you've gone up at 6.30 a.m. Texas time to watch Liverpool on a Saturday morning, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a difficult thing and you have to really be you have to be passionate about it to make it work. So, you know, credit to you 100% for, for being that diehard fan. Yeah, it's easier when the when the team's good, right? <laughs> yeah, I've had a few weekends ruined in the past couple of years before 9am <laughs> on a Saturday morning, and that's a, that's a brutal one. Well, sometimes, uh, you know, <laughs> when the standards are so high and then, some you know, Liverpool loses, that just hurts even more. Like, at least you're used to it now, you know? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, your, uh, your one or two losses a season don't go unnoticed. Anyway, let's get into kind of the, the, the meat of this. Obviously, you're here. I'm casting you away on your desert island where you're going to be stuck for the rest of your life and you're going to have five goals that you can rewatch slash relive for the rest of time. How was that process for you? Was this a concept that you found easy to kind of narrow down to five goals? And do you have a particular favorite type of goal? Is it Are we going to see long shots? Are we going to see passing moves? What what kind of went into your decision making process for this list? For the, to your first question, there were definitely you know goals that instantly came to mind right uh, when kind of going through this. But then the more and more I thought about it, you know, more goals started to kind of creep in. Uh, like, oh, this could potentially go in there. But yeah, I think overall there were maybe two or three that I was for sure. Okay, these have to go in there, and then the rest it was kind of like a pool of I don't know seven or eight that could potentially make the cut. And then your second question was about ideal goal. Do you, or... Yeah. Do you, do you have a favorite type of goal? Like, mm. you know, I know you mentioned the Steven Gerrard volleys and so on. Like yeah. that. Is that, so is that kind of your favorite type of goal and what, you know, are we going to see the same type of goal all throughout your list or is it kind of a mix? I think it's kind of a mix. You know, I would say I love a long range goal. Um, first time volley, you know, incredible technique, things like that. But I also think to relive and rewatch these, you know, there has to be that emotional aspect behind it. It has to really mean something. So I would say, yeah, a good amount of my goals were goals that were very tense, very 
emotional, had a lot of meaning behind them and had a lot of impact behind them. So that kind of swayed my decision on a couple, a couple goals. There was definitely some that maybe were just like incredible goals, but did it really lead to anything or mean anything? Maybe not. So yeah, I think the, the emotional aspect of it is really what makes me want to relive that moment. And I also tried to pick goals that like I actually watched live. So, you know, like I was saying earlier, it was hard to watch EPL games live back in the day. Yeah, there may not be some of my favorite goals ever on there on our list today, but that was just because like I, I didn't get to actually watch it live. And so when I feel like I, I was there in the moment and I, like, I experienced it, like I want to recapture that feeling. Um, and so there's definitely a couple goals on that list today that I would love to go back and just like relive, have an out-of-body experience, watch myself watching that goal would be cool. And yeah, I think that kind of sums up my five. Yeah. Yesterday, to a big striker. Actually, we've got five breaking here. Sanchez. Behind Giroud! Oh! He's come up with it! Full chance early on. What about this? You just took my commentary line out of my see something like this again. Archie looks probably, but it's higher, it's more difficult probably than Mkhitaryan's. Mkhitaryan's was incredible. This is frightening. Okay, so goal number one, and this is Olivier Giroud's scorpion kick. This is Arsenal against Crystal Palace, the Premier League 2017, and the reason for it, I'm going to give it away and then ask you to explain a little bit more, is that previous guest on this podcast, Chris Madden, and yourself were at this game together in London, uh, having stayed with me the night before. What a game to be there for, to see the eventual Puskas Award winner as Olivier Giroud's scorpion kick flies into the top corner. Crystal Palace absolutely desolate with hope at that point. Kellen, talk me through what the experience was like at the Emirates and talk me through your memories of the goal itself. Okay. Yeah, first of all, Emirates, dead atmosphere. I will say. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, the Olivier Giroud scorpion kick. Anytime it comes up, I have to tell people that I was there. So that's you know why it was in that top five. And obviously it won the Puskas. But yeah, it was part of a big road trip or big trip with my dad, Chris, you know, best friend, and his dad just kind of all through the UK around the Boxing Day time and just catching as many matches as we could and my dad's a big uh, Arsenal fan, so I think that was also kind of you know sentimental part of of this goal as well as on top of being such an incredible goal. But yeah, New Year's Day rolling up to the stadium, we're uh, extremely hungover from the night out before with Callum and his friends. What an experience! What a time! <laughs> I remember. I'm interested to see what Chris has to say about this as well. See his like account wow. of, of this memory. We but. should. Um... We should shout out the World's End pub in Finsbury Park for yeah. a good night the night before. Absolutely. On uh, New Year's Eve 2016. <laughs> I don't remember it, but yeah, apparently it was a good time. Um, <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember waking up the next day. You took us to brunch somewhere and our dads are freaking out. Like, where the hell are you guys? We're going to be late to the game and whatnot. And eventually, you know, making it in the stadium, we have these great seats right behind the goal. Uh, where it eventually happens. I think we're, I don't know, seven or eight rows back. And yeah, I just remember the the counterattack starting. And I think the ball 
I don't know. Giroud kind of starts it right with like a, a flick on. Mm-hmm. I forget who it goes to, but eventually goes out to, to Sanchez on the left-hand side. Yeah. And I remember the cross coming in and all of a sudden we just see the, you know, the ball bounce underneath the crossbar and back up into the net. And everyone, I think everyone in the scene was kind of stunned for a little bit. Um, obviously we we're going crazy because the goal, but um, I think what really stood out to me was, you know, after the celebrations, they played the goal back on the screen and you just hear the whole stadium go, Oh, like that. And it was just like, <laughs> Oh my God, what did we just see? Hands on our heads, like all just kind of looking at her like, Oh my God, Holy can I curse or no? Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, Holy shit. What was that? And we were just high-fiving going crazy. And yeah, it was, I mean, it was a surreal feeling just to kind of witness that in person, you know, with, uh, with your best friend and your two dads there. Like, it was it was awesome. So it's um, it's an incredible, an incredible goal. goal. Yeah, the move itself is a good counterattack, and it's 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 Arsenal football. You know, whatever you want to say about Arsenal as a team throughout their history and certainly the Premier League era, they pretty much always played good football. Like, give them credit for that one hundred percent. And the goal itself, you know, Sanchez, who was a wonderful player for Arsenal and not for anybody else in the Premier League, Sanchez put a cross in that was just slightly behind Giroud and to have that kind of to me it's the improvisation you know mm-hmm. I, I I used to I used to love watching Dimitar Berbatov when he played for Tottenham oh yeah you know? absolutely Dimitar Berbatov could improvise and do things not necessarily that but like that things you didn't see people yeah. do and there's this famous clip when he was playing for Fulham where he scores he, I think he scored a goal with a back heel and they asked him afterwards like you know why did you do that and he goes well that was the only thing that made sense. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he's such a genius that nobody else could confirm that that's the right thing to do. But in his head, it's the obvious choice. And, you know, in this moment, Giroud, I think he's just trying to get any contact on the ball. I think you're you're probably giving him slightly too much credit if you say he's aiming to back heel it into right. the top corner. I don't know that you could ever try that properly. Right. But he's made good contact with the ball. And Palace, unlucky to con- concede one of the all-time great Premier League goals. Yeah, but it's like, you know, even the average professional soccer player, you give them a hundred attempts to do something like that. And maybe they get one, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Like with, with a goalie in, in goal, like I don't even know if a lot of them score. So yeah, it was just the, <laughs> the incredible technique and improvisation. Like you said, it's, it was, we were lucky to witness that. I don't think if I ever go to a thousand soccer games again, I'll ever see something like that. I really liked your impression of the, crowd going oh because there is there's very much there is a noise that at least i from my perspective uk football fans make when something kind of disrespectful kind of incredible happens Mm -hmm. you know if somebody if somebody does a really nasty take on step over and nutmeg someone there's a they make a different noise to a goal you know i mean like a goal is very much a yeah cheering but when you see something like that on the replay that Mm oh like how has he done that how has he managed that that you know, there is something about being in a crowd when that noise goes off. So you just that is completely special. Um, yeah. I know you joked when we when we started about the atmosphere in the Emirates, but <laughs> genuinely, for people who may not have had the the chance to to go, I, I will defend the Emirates and say I think it's a really nice stadium. It the is, people it inside is. it we can talk about, but the stadium itself is really nice. And yeah, how how was your experience in amongst the Arsenal fans? Yeah, I think overall it was pretty good. I mean, yeah, I was joking about the atmosphere. I mean. I think it was a 
I think it was a cold, rainy night in London when we had that game. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think overall it was a great experience. I mean, there was no, uh, no issues or problems. And yeah, I mean, I think what they say about the Emirates is like, there's not a bad seat in the house. And obviously when you're seven or eight rows behind the goal, that definitely doesn't hurt either. But (laughs) yeah, I thought it was a one of a kind experience. Super happy for my dad to be able to go over there and, and watch a game at the Emirates. I just want to kind of focus in on the goal scorer himself for just a second because Olivier Giroud is a really interesting character to me. I think he was a little bit unfairly blamed for some of Arsenal's lack of success in the latter Wenger years. You know, Wenger, Wenger himself actually said that this goal was the best goal he'd ever seen scored at the Emirates, which when really? you think about some of the players who've played there and some of the goals that they've scored, that says a lot from, from Arsene Wenger to say that. I, I always liked Giroud. I always thought yeah. Giroud was a good player. And, you know, the success that he had at Chelsea after he left Arsenal, I think, you know, showed that as well. When 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 someone says Olivier Giroud to you, taking, you know, this goal memory out of him, what do you think of Giroud as a player and his kind of place in Premier League history? Yeah, I think he's um, a really good player. Very techie. Um, and I always, I hated him because he always scored against Liverpool. And <laughs> he does have a good record yeah, against Liverpool. Like he's true. one of those guys that I hated whenever we like you know, the lineups came out and he was starting, I was like, oh shit, we gotta play against Giroud. You know, he's he's a good hold up man. He can, you know, start counterattacks pretty good in the build up play. And then I think finishing wise, like he can do stuff like that Scorpion kick. He can score all kinds all different types of goals. So yeah, I always rated him, thought he was a good player. Um just hated that he always scored against us. And yeah, I do think he got some uh, some stick as most Premier League players do, right? Um, but yeah, I always thought he was a good player and I would have loved to have like, been able to root for him because I think he would have scored some incredible goals at Liverpool too. I think wherever he goes, he's going to score goals. Well, he had an incredible season last year helping AC Milan win the Scudetto in Italy for the first time in a long time. And he's also a World Cup winner with France. Yeah. I mean, you know, when he's playing alongside Mbappe and Griezmann in a front three, admittedly, there was reasons why Benzema wasn't in that squad, but Giroud still played and played really well in that yeah, World Cup in exactly. 2018. Yeah, I think everywhere he's been, he's had success. So like that tells you kind of everything you need to know. Okay, and then I guess just to finish off on this goal itself, did it bother you at all that this was kind of just another Premier League game? Or was it really just the fact that you were in attendance and this goal was scored? Yeah that was so incredible that that puts it in yeah. five. Because obviously being in the stadium makes a huge difference. Yeah, right. Yeah, I guess I kind of contradicted myself when I said, you know, it has to mean something. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of my goals on here do. There's a couple that maybe don't. But yeah, I think it was, you know, being from the US, being in the UK in a Premier League ground, watching a game like that, that's a special experience. Like, I haven't gone back since to, to do that. I want to, obviously. But, um, you know, coming from a foreign country and especially somewhere, you know, like America, it's, it's hard to kind of just go back over there um, and, and get some games. So I think being in the grounds um, and then just having, you know, good company to share it with yourself included, you know, the night before night after um, all that kind of stuff is it's a special memory, you know, it's, it was a special trip. So it does mean something to me. Obviously it was just kind of another premier league game. I think they won the game like four nil or something, but um, as a Puskas winner, I was there. How could it not be in the list, you know? He sees Liverpool playing on, and he's happy to let them do so, and they're happy to do so. Cooks for Mino! 
of margins. Effectively, when they were down to 10 manis, but in the headlines. Okay, goal number two, and we are sticking with your trip to the UK, Kellen. Uh, but this time, we're going to the other end of the country. Technically, happening before the Olivier Giroud goal. We're headed to Anfield, and it's not the last time we're going to be there on this list. And this is Roberto Firmino for Liverpool against Stoke City in the Premier League, December of 2016. And this goal puts Liverpool 2-1 up in a game they eventually win 4-1, having been 1-0 down to an early Jonathan Walters goal for Stoke. Kellen, obviously, logic would say this was your first time at Anfield. What was that experience like and what's your memories of this goal? Yeah, another one on the on the list here from the trip. Let's see, it was the first stop of our tour across the UK. And I think we flew into Manchester, took the train up to Liverpool, checked in the hotel, and then it was pretty much straight to Anfield without a whole lot of sleep. So obviously just like super excited to be going, buzzing, mate, to on, on the way there. And just, yeah, walking into the ground, walking around the ground, you could just kind of feel the electricity and the buzz. And, you know, this was early days of Klopp, but I think, you know, there were signs there and everyone was fully invested in the team. And yeah, it probably is just, you know, one of those random games, right? Liverpool versus, versus Stoke City. But yeah, I remember going in the ground, you know, having a beer with my dad and, you know, making sure we were in our seats and, and ready to go for all the pre-match stuff, watching the team come out of the tunnel and, and warm up, seeing Kloppo. What a man. What a giant. And yeah, singing You'll Ever Walk Alone. You know, we were standing basically adjacent to the the cop. So the crowd there and the excitement there was incredible. And yeah, I can't wait to go back, hopefully, for a Champions League game at some point. That's my uh, my next bucket list item. But first five minutes, I think Stoke City take the lead. And I'm just thinking, shit. You know, came all the way over here, first game of the tour, and we're gonna we're gonna lose to Stoke City. And yeah, it was you know it wasn't a great feeling, but you know there was belief, and I think Lalana got the the equalizer, and then shortly after, couldn't tell you anything about the build up play. I just remember the finish, and it was Firmino, which is you know one of my favorite players in this kind of new era under Klopp. Uh, just I don't know, just epitomizes what you want in. A player, you know, super humble, super professional, and just kind of works for the team. Um, and I think the goal, he like a left-footed shot, and I think it hit both both posts before going in. So it was kind of kind of cool to see. And um, they celebrated like right in front of us. So we weren't uh, we weren't as close to the pitch as we were at Arsenal, but you know we were there not too far away. And seeing the the goal celebrations right in front of us was was really cool. And just the the jump um, when that goal went in and taking the lead again, everyone was big sigh of relief, especially myself. So yeah, it's, it made the list just again, I was there first time at Anfield. What an experience um, after, you know, being a fan for, I don't know, I guess I was 21 at that point. So yeah, 12, 13 years. It was surreal. There's a long time coming and, you know, Great that you were able to be there in person and see this goal. I mean, you, you're spot on. I, I had to go and rewatch this just to refresh my memory with which particular uh, Liverpool goal against Stoke City this was before we recorded. And you're right, hits both posts, which always looks great. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I really do think that 
Firmino is the kind of player who has that that level of skill. I far be it for me to love many Liverpool players, but I, I absolutely love Bobby Firmino. I think he's fantastic. I think he is by far and away the least respected of that front three that was yeah. Mane, Salah, and Firmino. And you know, I would regularly say that I thought he was Liverpool's most important player. Maybe not their best because you know right. Van Dijk did did things that were very very special, and Salah and Mane too. But there was always a thing when Liverpool didn't have Firmino on the pitch in the attack that I, I always felt they weren't quite the same team without him. Genuinely. Yeah, it wasn't and as maybe uh... maybe you could say that about any of those three. Yeah, but Bobby Firmino himself, I really think hasn't necessarily got the respect that he's deserved throughout right. his Liverpool career. And obviously, you said he's one of your favorite players. So, what is yeah. it about about Firmino that really uh, really drew him to you? Yeah, I think yeah, going to what you said, like. When he's not on the team, you know, it doesn't seem as fluid, right? He kind of makes things tick. Yeah, he doesn't get the headlines or the goals as Salah and Mane did. But, you know, I think they would, if you ask them, you know, they would give just as much credit for their success, you know, as um, down to Firmino doing a lot of the dirty work for him. So, yeah, I think what what I like about him, Firmino is, you know, he, he does that dirty work that, and I'm saying, you know, Mane and Salah don't, but... He's, you know, tracking back to the the top of the 18 at your own box, winning the ball back and then immediately getting on his horse and sprinting the other way to, to start the counterattack. And I think there's a quote from maybe Klopp or something, but he's like, Mo Salah, world-class, but not every day. Sadio Mane, world-class, but not every day. Bobby Firmino, world-class pretty much every day. And yeah, maybe in the last couple of years he hasn't, um, he's kind of, you know, lost a little bit. His legs are probably... A little bit shot after uh, all the work he's put in, but I think he's just a top professional. Doesn't complain. I think the other part about him is he just plays with that smile on his face and just always is enjoying himself out there. So it's uh, it's a joy to watch him play. And I mean, if if I could be a Ford, I want to be like him. You know, so silky and and skillful and uh, just sees the game in so many ways that probably other people don't. So yeah, that's uh, probably my admiration for for Firmino summed up I think you know when he was under because I think he got bought under Brendan Rodgers and Rodgers was playing him at like right wing back which was insane (laughs) but again like he just went in there put in the shift every game and you know did his thing and then kind of uh helped start the revolution under Klopp so really important player hope Liverpool re-sign him to like another deal uh, in the next couple of years, I'd love for him to just kind of retire there. He's a legend. I got to get my Firmino jersey to complete my original front three set. Spoiler alert, we're going to carry on talking about Liverpool for the next couple of goals here. But you mentioned it, you know, in this trip that when you were at Anfield, this was the early days of Klopp. Obviously, he's gone on to achieve incredible things with Liverpool and probably will continue to do so for as long as he wants to be there. I certainly can't imagine Liverpool firing him. I just I can't see that as ever being realistic. So it's really Klopp's job for as long as he wants it. Bringing in Klopp, I just felt like changed the whole like aura around the club from day one. What he took over in that like October maybe of fifteen. Yeah, even from the early days, right? There were issues, but the squad wasn't great. I mean, if you look at his disgusting to kind of look at, um, but you could see. You know, the players were willing to play for him. I think there was just kind of a total mindset change as well. And even though I think we finished like eighth in the league, there were there were signs that, you know, something was there. You know, you kind of 
bring in some new pieces, get some better players, the uh, the foundations there to to go on and like build something. So I think we had like Joe Allen playing. I mean, what were we supposed to do with that? And like Martin Skirtle. But I think where I really kind of, you know, felt that belief was we went to the Etihad and beat City like 4-1, I think. And yeah, you could just kind of see a whole new identity with the team and the club. And I think the energy club brought too was just, you know, really refreshing for the fans and, and players. So it just kind of made sense. It was a good match. He had a connection to the city and the fans and give him as much time as he needs because uh, there was a lot of rebuilding to be done and a lot of heartache to get over. So yeah, going to Anfield, even in that first full year, I guess, for him, uh, you could tell that people were were ready to to kind of go go through a brick wall for him. So I had uh, I had total belief the whole way. Just overall as a city, you know, I really enjoyed Liverpool. Great people, great city. I don't really know what what the hate is all about, but yeah, it was special. And like I said, I want to go back for a Champions League game because you know I think that atmosphere would be even even better. And especially now at the heights that we're at, like. It would just be crazy to to kind of be involved there um, in the chaos. So, one day. The raw emotion of what's going on in this game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got it! He's got it! Okay, goal number three. We are back at Anfield and one of the most famous nights of recent years for sure and probably of all time as far as Anfield European nights uh, go. This is Liverpool 4, Barcelona nil, Anfield Istanbul, if you mm. like, as Liverpool overcome a 3-0 first leg deficit, which was in itself an incredible performance from Barcelona. And Liverpool win the second leg 4-0. Divock Origi scores twice to make it to the Champions League final, which yeah. they would eventually win. Kellen's third goal is Divock Origi's second of the game, perhaps unsurprisingly. I was actually at work, and I remember um, I was in a meeting during the first half of the game. Actually, I think even into like this, I don't know, part of the second half. And so I was just kind of sitting there on the meeting, uh, I was just kind of listening in, and I had obviously Fat Mob pulled up on my computer, and I was just kind of you know refreshing it. Obviously, see one nil like the first ten minutes or whatever, um, and then I think yeah, second half comes around. Super sub Genie Wijnaldum. I see it go to two zero, and then like before I can even refresh again or like you know like go on Twitter or whatever, I see three zero, and I'm like holy shit. And so, yeah, the meeting eventually ends and I just like go to like a, I was in the office at the time. I just go to like a little private meeting room or whatever. And I'm like, I got to pull this game up immediately. It's 3-3 on aggregate. Got to pull this up. Like everyone get away from me. Don't talk to me. I'm going to pretend like I'm working in here. Um, And so I'm just like in this like private little cubicle space and I have the game up. And I remember Trent's like down the right, right hand side, ball goes up for a corner I'm just like sitting there, like, okay, all right, here we go. Corner, big verge, here we go. And before I know it, ball's in play and the goal's in the back of the net. 
and I do my best to not just like let out a huge scream, but I'm just in there like fist bumping, you know, going, you know, just jumping up out of my seat, um, trying to make it look like, you know, I'm not doing anything crazy, but, um, yeah, I just remember that moment. just like, holy shit, four zero against Barcelona without Mo Salah, uh, without Firmino. I can't remember who else. I think like Milner was playing. So that tells you everything you need to know. But yeah, it was a crazy moment in one of those kind of iconic Anfield magical moments um, that you you hear about and watch as a kid. Um, and so seeing one happen live was was incredible and kind of took me back to you know, that's again, like going back to why I fell in love with the club. Like you hear about these iconic emotional moments in that stadium and uh yeah, seeing one happen in front of you was just incredible. And yeah, that, I think that's what it ended up in the top top five goals to relive and rewatch. Could watch that all day. Plus, you know, Barca fans and Deers. <laughs> Trailing Barca fans. Yeah, does, it, does it get much better than that? No, it's hard to beat that. I'll give you that for sure. When you look at this Liverpool team, it makes it even more incredible. With Origi starting through the middle and Jed and Shakiri starting on the right of a front three with Mane on the left. Another interesting side that I'd completely forgotten was this. This was Felipe Coutinho's return to Anfield. He got subbed off and left, knocked out of the Champions League. But I, I, I would say I think it's fair to say that this was not the peak of Barcelona at the time. Maybe not as good as they had been in previous seasons. With Vidal on the right, Coutinho on the left, long lay at centre-back, and Sergio Roberto, I'm not really convinced by a right-back. But this is still Suarez, this is still Messi, this is still Coutinho, Rakitic, Busquets, Piquet... Jordi Alba, this is by no means a bad Barcelona team. And as we said, they've taken Liverpool apart 3-0 in the first leg. The comeback, simply incredible. I wanted to talk about the goal scorer here because Divock Origi is someone who, I think he has one of the most interesting Liverpool careers of recent years because he was not a player who was consistently great. He was not a player who started lots of games and scored lots of goals. But for some reason, he always seemed to score an important goal. A friend of mine who shall remain nameless because he knows who he is, tried to suggest that Diva Parigi was a better player for Liverpool than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was for Manchester United. My initial reaction was, that's nonsense. Solskjaer's a far better player. And I think overall he probably was. But in terms of longevity and cult hero status... I feel like the mm-hmm. cop will sing Diva Parigi's yeah. name for decades to come just for this goal, the goal in the final to secure the win mm-hmm. against Tottenham and that winner against Everton. Klopp has always rated him and has said, you know, he's a Liverpool legend. He's a great striker. And I think maybe his best quality is just like the calmness he brings to the pitch. It seems like he has a very level head and anytime he anytime he gets into a position he's pretty lethal like he doesn't miss a whole lot of chances especially the ones that you expect strikers to put away um but yeah he's no doubt a, a liverpool legend and cult hero um there's you know some meme that goes around the liverpool twitter sphere and, and whatever uh it says football without a is nothing so i mean the the fans love him i think he you know, off the field, he did a lot for the community as well. So people seem to, to really like him um, for that as well. But I think if you're going to be a backup striker at Liverpool, you got to come on and, and perform when the team needs you to. And he always did that. You know, he wasn't the out-and-out starter by any means, but 
anytime he was called upon, he, he seemed to show up. So it's hard to, to knock a guy who does that for you and scores such big moments and iconic moments. So yeah, he's a, he's a legend. I think we'll miss him again this year, but you know, wish him all the best. And I think for his own career, going somewhere like AC Milan will will hopefully give him some more playing time and give him the ability to kind of make more of a name for himself. So rooting for him wherever he goes. And I'm sure if he ever comes back to Anfield, people will, will give him a rousing. The four minutes have elapsed. It's a corner kick far side the left. Robertson stays back just to keep an eye on any breakaway. Allison is up from the back, and it comes! Allison! Oh, would you believe it? The Liverpool goalkeeper in injury time has won it for Liverpool. What a dramatic and remarkable finish here at the Hawthorns. Liverpool close the gap on the top four. Leicester and Chelsea are under real pressure. And a dramatic finale. And Liverpool celebrate. They've snatched it right to the death. 2-1. Okay, goal number four. And it's a (laughs) great, great, great goal. This is our previous guest, Annie Lyons, actually said that the best goal in football is a goalkeeper coming up from the back and scoring. So you've already got support from one of our other guests in, in, in this goal. Uh, she didn't have it in her five, but she did specifically mention it. This is Alison Becker in the 95th minute, May 16th, 2021. West Brom 1, Liverpool 2. The goal that effectively got Liverpool into the top four two years ago that led to them playing in the Champions League and reaching the final this past season. Alisson, obviously Liverpool's goalkeeper, trundles up from the back to try and attack a corner with basically the last touch of the game. Liverpool were 1-0 down in this game early on to Hal Robson-Kanu. Mo Salah equalised, as he so often does. But it looks as though, it looked as though Liverpool were going to end the day with just a point and probably finish outside the top four until the big Brazilian stepped up and with an unbelievably good header, won the game for Liverpool. Kellen, I'm not at all surprised to see this on your list. I was back home and I was watching with my other uh, diehard Liverpool fan, Brendan Foley. And yeah, we were watching the game at his house and um, yeah, obviously going 1-0 down, you know, we were... Not in the greatest of moods. Yeah, just I think we got really unlucky. You know, I think we hit the post a couple times in that game. And yeah, obviously very tense. We're watching the game, standing up, fingers or arms crossed right in front of the TV, um, as two dads would do. But <laughs> I remember the, the corner being set up, me and Fuller both looking at each other like, all right, this is it. Like, if there's ever a moment where we needed something incredible to happen, like it's right now, I'm sitting there going, it's going to be Nat Phillips. I can't even believe I'm saying that, but Nat Phillips is going to score the game-winning header here for us. And Foley just turns and looks me in the eyes and goes, no, Allison. And we the, the camera cuts to uh, Allison running up the field, and we're like, oh, my God, could you imagine? And sure enough, corner, uh, Trent whips in the corner, and there's Allison with an unbelievable header that just goes right straight into the corner, and we just go crazy jumping up and down, screaming. And yeah, I mean, that was incredible. And I think, you know, the other reason it's in there is that season was so shitty for Liverpool. 
I mean, it was no fans, right? Um, and yeah, I think there was a point where, I mean, we were top of the league, um, I think at Christmas or like some, sometime around then, maybe. I think it was a little before that because Christmas yeah. was when there was that really bad run of defeats that basically ended Liverpool's unbeaten home record yeah. for so long. And then they all of a sudden lost three or four in a row at Anfield, starting with Everton, I think, in early December. But you're right in saying that this was the year, the, the, the second COVID year, if you like, where there were no fans in the stands. It was getting a bit back to normal, but the season didn't start until like October and everything was a little bit weird. But Liverpool started the season well, and then the infamous Virgil van Dijk, Jordan Pickford injury. You know, we still had, I think, Matip, who was playing pretty well, to be fair to him. And then he eventually went went down injured, and we were starting like Henderson and Fabinho at center back um, until they both got injured. <laughs> and yeah, so I mean, it was just a grueling patch of the season where, yeah, I think like, yeah, I think you said we lost like three or four games in a row at Anfield, which probably didn't mean anything because there was no fans there. Um, but then I think we also lost like a bunch of other games on the road as well. And it's like, we just weren't picking up points. I don't know. Maybe we were in like eighth or something at, at one point and making top four was obviously the objective and it just didn't look likely. And I think towards the end of the season, we, we kind of put together a run of like the last 10 or 11 games where, you know, we we're picking up momentum and collecting points. I don't know what Klopp did or must have said to the guys, but um, I still maintain that Klopp getting top four, not even top four, he got third place with Reese Williams and Nat Phillips as a center backs for like half that season um, is one of the greatest accomplishments. And so, yeah, like, you know, the emotion behind this goal, I think, was was really telling. You could just see how much it meant to the, the players on the field at the time. And then I think, um, I want to say, like, Allison, like, lost his dad, too. And so, like, it was a super emotional moment for him. And, yeah, I just, I loved kind of seeing that. And it was just kind of a culmination of a shitty season ending on a high with an incredible moment and something you don't see really ever. I mean, I can't tell you the last time I saw a goalie score a, a goal from a corner or anything like that. So I think uh, the culmination of witnessing it with uh full and going crazy and just the, the emotions of that season. And I mean, even when we were losing all those games, I was still sitting there watching them and just like, okay, we're going to turn it around and it just never came. Can I tell you the one way that this goal would have been better and the one thing that How's I that? wish would have been the case? I wish there were fans in the stands. Oh, yeah. Like, I understand why they weren't, and it makes a lot of sense why they weren't. No no critique from me whatsoever on the safety regulations to do with COVID. But can you imagine the, the scenes in the away end when the goalkeeper no. scores the winner in the ninth? <laughs> the there would have been people would have been on that field. They would have been unbelievable, yeah. and you know, even yeah. you know, I think this. I think at this point, West Brom were basically relegated or already relegated. Sam Allardyce yeah, had managed to get them out of hadn't managed to get them out of the relegation zone, but the noise in that ground from a small pocket of fans, if there had been fans, would have been mm-hmm. simply incredible. Oh yeah, I wish, I wish, I wish I could have been there. That'd been sick. <laughs> I enjoy the looks on the Liverpool players' faces who genuinely can't believe it. Like I, I, Salah, Salah's face, he cannot believe that Alisson Allison, excuse me, has just scored. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was Nat Phillips, but, you know, watching the replay, it was 
clearly not. And yeah, I mean, what a header too. Like, I don't think I could have done that. <laughs> what a goal. It was a happy and positive note to end the season on after such uh, such turmoil. I felt like a United fan for a little bit. I, I had to include it. Howard gratefully claims it. Distribution, brilliant. Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again, but Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! Okay, we finally made it to Kellen's fifth and final goal. And finally, one of my American guests has finally selected the goal that I was expecting to be on everyone's list when we started this podcast. Landon Donovan, you can rest easy. You are finally in the Desert Island Goals anthology. This is Landon Donovan for the United States of America against Algeria in the final group stage game of the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, where famously England and the USA were in the same group and the USA won the group thanks to this goal from Landon Donovan in the 90th minute of the game to steal a win against Algeria and push the US through to the round of 16. Kellen, this is obviously the oldest on your list by Mm -hmm. a significant margin. Take us through why this one made your list and... I can't believe it's taken this long for us to have this discussion yeah. with this goal. I'm surprised none of the other Americans have selected this. Because for me, this is an iconic American goal. Maybe that's just me um, and you know the generation I grew up in. But yeah, 2010, right? South Africa. Um, most World Cups taking place in the summer unless you uh, sell out to the oil money. But yeah, I think uh, I was at home. You know, it was during the summer. I was watching with my two brothers, Harper and Ty. And obviously another tense game, right? You're on the edge of your seat. And I just remember the uh, the counterattack starting with Tim Howard throwing it out to, I think it was Donovan who started it, right? And I forget, maybe played a pass out to someone. Um, and then seeing the cross come in, Dempsey in for the, uh, the tap in, gets saved. And then just like, a flash out of nowhere, Landon Donovan comes into the screen and finishes the goal. And I, I don't know if he, I don't remember if he takes his shirt off or if he just like does the penguin slide into the corner flag. And I know my brothers and I were just running up and down, jumping up and down, going crazy um, when that happened. I think my dad was like downstairs working. It was telling us to, to be quiet until we told him what had happened. Um, and yeah, it was just an incredible moment, I think. You know, one of the, the first true World Cup moments where I could really remember and, you know, felt kind of attached to the game. Um, and yeah, I would just love to kind of relive that moment and and see it again. Was it, did we beat England in the first game or was it a draw? I can't remember. Yeah, that was the infamous Rob Green. Rob Green. Uh, yeah. Dempsey shot through him and the, the famous headline on the front of one of the, uh, maybe it's a New York Post, USA wins 1 1. Very okay, good so American draw. media to be yeah. fair, yeah. So, yeah. you know, you had to win the game to get through, I believe. Um, yeah, that's, that's right. Why the yeah, goal the stakes were so, high. The goal was so pivotal. And, you know, a last-minute winner in a World Cup game, 
Landon Donovan, one of, if not the greatest Americans to ever play this game at this point. You know, mm-hmm. credit to him for being there and a great finish. And the celebrations, you're right. The full slide to the corner flag, bundle of bodies over there. It's it's a great moment. It really is, even if it came at the expense of my country, effectively. Um, <laughs> what did, did England what did not he, go through? Or? No, England did go through, but we got battered by Germany in the round of 16. Mm. So um, we were very quickly not, not through. Uh, so we were very quickly out afterwards. Was it the USA finished top? Yeah, or... USA won the group. Oh, wow. Okay. Which in itself was crazy. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who the fourth team in that group was. Slovenia. Mm, okay. So the games were as follows. England and the USA drew 1-1. Algeria lost 1-0 to Slovenia. Slovenia and the US drew a 2-2 game, including a late equalizer by Michael Bradley. In fact, the US came from 2-0 down at halftime. To I think, get a yeah, point I do remember game. that. That yeah. was 2-2. And then, in the fi- and then England drew 0-0 with Algeria. In the final group game, England won 1-0 against Slovenia. But based on goals scored, the US topped the group Went through. Yeah. because the goal difference was exactly the same. But, uh, yeah, the US topped the group on goals scored and therefore were able to avoid Germany and uh, instead play Ghana. That was the unfortunate one that you lost to Ghana, right? Yeah. 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 So the US was able to avoid Germany and did unfortunately lose to Ghana, but still made it through having won the group, not losing a game. Credit to Rob Bradley and his and his men for figuring that out. In terms of the national teams, both the US men's and women's, you know, what, what do they what do they mean to you? I feel like while a lot of American football fans that I know maybe are not super invested in MLS. I feel like everyone is fairly invested in the national team. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd say the casual soccer fan over here, you know, turns up and will watch the World Cup every four years. Um, But I'd say, I mean, I think for me, my attachment to the national team, I mean, I remember at least being able to see them play a couple of times live, which was always cool as a young kid. Um you know, seeing them train too a couple of times, even at Trinity, you know, we got to see that. And I think one of the other reasons I, I like to keep up with is just, you know, it gives you a, a kind of view into our youth programs and development. You know, are we really progressing? And so it's always nice to kind of see new players kind of coming through the ranks, um, especially having ties to FC Dallas. Um, there's always a good contingent of talent in the U.S. men's national team that either developed uh, or yeah, usually developed at the academy at FC Dallas. So um, yeah, I always like to follow it. Um, I don't expect greatness out of them. I just want to see improvement. But I always say it's hard to to really feel like we're catching up to the world when you know all these other powerhouses obviously continue to get better and better as well. But I do think we're getting better. I think the women's team, you know, they obviously caught fire. I think. I mean. I go back to like that Mia Ham goal, obviously, like in, was it the Olympics or was it a women's world cup? I can't remember, but like, they've always been, you know, pretty good and, and pretty talented. Um, I don't think they've always had the most popularity, but, uh, and late, at least in recent years, you know, they're starting to gain a lot of traction. And I think, you know, even the women's teams in like Europe, you know, watching some of those Euro, Euro games, um, you know, it's good for the game to see so many people 
more invested in that as well. So I think, uh, yeah, the U.S. men's team gets a lot of stick for not winning anything. I'm not going to say trophies because I don't expect that from the U.S. men's national team. But, you know, at least see some good progress in the World Cup to to make things exciting. And I'd say just playing good soccer is, is what's going to maybe attract some more people as well. I think it's really interesting that we've basically got two England-USA games of note in the latter stages of this year because we're going to get to the World Cup in just one second. But they announced it earlier this week that the U.S. women's national team is going to play the English that. women's national team yeah. at Wembley in October, and it's sold out today. Completely sold really? out. Wow. It's a sellout crowd at Wembley, which is minimum 85,000. I guess it depends on exactly how they are sectioning fans or not, but it could be as many as 90,000 people for a top-five world matchup, for sure, probably. If you're the champions yeah. of Europe and you're the, and you're the U.S., I mean, you've, you've got to say that's a top-five matchup in the world right now. Obviously, the U.S. knocked England out of the Women's World Cup in 2019. So a little bit of a revenge game, maybe, um, with the Women's World Cup coming up again next year. Really interesting. And then, obviously, when we get to November, we may not want to go there. We may not like the fact that we're going there. But when we get to Qatar, England... The USA, mm-hmm. old friends, same group, along with Wales and Iran. It's a very politically big, charged big, big group. revenge game for Iran. Listen, it's a very politically charged <laughs> group with the Welsh. Yeah, it is. Well, it's, it is. The only, the, the only, I mean, <laughs> Wales against Iran maybe doesn't have that much polit- political on it, but I think everything else does. I think on paper, I think it's, it's a toss-up between the US and Wales for who goes through second, respectfully. Mm. I think the US could very much make a claim to be the better team overall on paper. But Wales very much have the best player in Gareth Bale. Right. Yeah. How do you see that going? Are you feeling confident about the U.S.'s chances of getting out of that group? It's a tricky one. I I do agree with you because I guess top to bottom, I'd say USA maybe has a slight advantage over over Wales. But Wales has Gareth Bale, like you said. I, I think they have a couple other... Uh, talented individuals that can make a difference. And yeah, I think that's maybe what the U.S. lacks, right, is that that cutting edge, um, that final ball. And like I said, you know, we're getting there. I think we have some good players in Pulisic. I really like Gio Reyna. I hope he's healthy for the World Cup because I think, you know, he's a big key to that. And I think, you know, overall, you know, we have, I think, most of our players playing in Europe at this point. And not like they're you know, playing for, for bad clubs either. You know, they're playing at a high level, um, some of the Champions League even. So I'm, I'm intrigued to see the roster that goes, um, the lineup that we send out there, and then the style of play also. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to say I'm like confident in us getting out, but I think it's, yeah. it should be expected that we make it out, even though it's a tricky group. Yeah, I think it comes down to that, that Wales game. Well, it's the first game of the group stage, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but Wales against the USA is the first game. Yeah. Uh, and then it's England-USA second. So I mean, the, the way I see it is if you if you are able to win that Wales game, you can kind of go into England as a free hit, knowing that if you beat Iran mm-hmm. on the last day, you'll be through. Yeah, although you can't take that USA versus Iran last, last game. They're going to be very motivated. We have to win, I think, that that first game which is going to be really challenging. Well, um, if you if you don't win that first game, let's say it's, if, I think if you lose, you're done. But if you were to draw against Wales, it's not necessarily the end of the world, but then it becomes basically a goal difference shootout 
against you know England and Iran, you you against Wales, who can score the most and concede the least, you know. And I think realistically, I would like to think that you would both lose to England and both beat Iran. So then it kind of comes to you know who do you trust in a goal scoring competition? I guess the advantage that you guys have is that if you are playing Iran last, you might know you how know, many yeah. you need to score already. Yeah. Um, based on what Wales did and what you expect Wales to do against England. But yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting group stage. It is. I'm interested to see, to hear what you think is going to happen. Give me, give me your prediction for USA versus England. Cause I think we get slaughtered. Maybe not like on a scoreline, but in terms of we're going to be kind of pulled around the park. I like that you flipped this on me and I started asking me questions. Um, it, it will really depend on what Gareth Southgate decides to do. I have some fairly strong feelings about some of the players who he probably is going to start that I don't think should be starting. But on paper, an England-USA game should be 2-0 or 3-0 to England, respectfully. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that. I would take 2-0 right on now. Paper. If you yeah. offer me 2-0 right now, I think... I, 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 I think the U.S. has a lot of talent. I really do. I love Pulisic. I love Gio Reyna. I even, you know, Tim Weir has got some talent. Yunus Musa, Weston McKenney is playing mm-hmm. in the Champions League. Like, these are all good players. Brendan Aronson's just gone to Leeds. Tyler Adams just gone to Leeds. For me, it's always the same with the U.S., which is you actually have some talented midfielders and forwards. And I look at your back line, and I think that is atrocious. If the U.S. could develop a centre-back that I thought was worth his soul, the U.S. would be a really good team. I love Dest. I think Dest is a very good fullback. I'm not 100% on Anthony Robinson on the other side. No. Nah, but I think, I think the US has a lot of talent in their squad and a lot of players. If they can stay healthy and be fit, I think there is a good chance that they can beat Wales and get out of the group. I mean, yeah. I think Gareth Bale is uh, a bit of a crazy man going to MLS right before he's going to go play the US <laughs> in the World Cup because all you're asking for is one crazy... Uh, center back to take a swing at him, bails out, and all of a sudden the US are going through. So uh, it'll yeah. be it'll be very interesting. I, I really am looking forward to the World Cup, and there's a number of groups that are really interesting. Obviously, the surroundings, the setting, everything that comes with it is abhorrent and a shame. But in terms of the football, I think it could be a really really good tournament. I just really wish that it wasn't being played in a horrible part of the world with you know really yeah. bad human rights. And in records. December. I mean, it should be happening right now. Should have, you know? Yes. I mean, the final should have been two weeks ago, basically. Um, yeah. But I kind of like the fact that that gave the women's Euros the summer to take the, yeah. take the center stage because God knows that was a brilliant tournament. and Football finally yeah. came home for the first time. Yeah, congrats to you. Oh, no, honestly, I've barely stopped crying, Kellen. It was a wonderful tournament, honestly, <laughs> genuinely. I was teary-eyed all Sunday and, uh, yeah, so, so happy that the England ladies got that done and... Uh, Credit to him. You know, I saw I saw a great uh, a great little image on Twitter earlier, which was Gareth Southgate's decided to name his new starting eleven, and it was just a picture of the England women team, all with fake <laughs> fake moustaches and fake hats, which I thought was <laughs> honestly spot on because you know they put their money where their mouth is, they delivered, and you know, great to see today yeah. they're sending open letters to potential MPs saying you need to improve provision for sport of for females in primary schools, and credit to him. They're everything that you want a team to be. And I do genuinely think the England men's team can be that. I think there's a lot of young talent in that England team that is likable. But the fandom, as you see, you know, let's say England women had gone to penalties with Germany and lost. 
do you think any of them would have received the abuse that Rashford, Sancho, and Saka received? No. no. And, no. And, 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 you know, again, sadly, a lot of that abuse was racially motivated. But it's also just so much more prevalent in men's football than in women's football. And I was, uh, you have to try and find a way to fix that. Yeah, I was, you know, I was telling you earlier, we were, I started watching the Arsenal All or Nothing Amazon series. And, yeah, I mean, obviously they talk about, you know, the, the penalty miss from Saka on part of the show. Like, they, they show a lot of, like, the abuse players get on Twitter. Even, like, whenever they signed Ramsdale, like, they, people were just going ballistic. And I was having to explain to Tara, I was like, you have to understand, like, soccer, football, Twitter is, like, one of the most toxic places ever. Like, it yep. is just disgusting. It's all banter and, you know, people are trolling and stuff, but it really is. It is horrible to see uh, what people say and even to like, you know, other fans and stuff. So, yeah, I agree. There there needs to be something done about it. And Don't get me wrong. You, you and I both enjoy a laugh. Like there's, yeah. there's very funny things on social media that are, you know, dark humor and things that are very funny and entertaining 100%. But the – you hear about ref, referees getting death threats. Yeah, you know, there's a line. The, there's, 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 there's a line. line. And if you can't see that line – I don't know how to help you, you know? Yeah. And I really don't yeah. know how we've ended up on this tangent from a, a Landon Donovan goal, but, you know, sometimes it'd just be like that. Okay, so, Kellen, thank you. Those are your five Desert Island goals. By way of a quick recap, we had Olivier Giroud, Scorpion kick. We had Roberto Firmino in off both posts. We had Divock Origi against Barcelona, and we had Alisson's header against West Brom. And finally, Landon Donovan for the U.S. against Algeria in the World Cup. Kellen, any honorable mentions that you'd like to put forward or any potential goals that should be on your list, but for some circumstance or other, they're not there? Anything you want to mention? Yeah, I've got, got a couple here that I have as honorable mentions. The first one is one you'll love, Callum. It is Mohamed Salah versus Manchester United. At Anfield, actually, not the not the hat trick at Old Trafford, but at Anfield, the two nil, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, basically, you know, I don't want to say wrap up the league, but there was obviously a big gap there, and you could hear kind of the chants around the stadium saying, you know, we're going to win the league. So I think that one just missed out. Um, obviously, meant a lot, and I think the other, I think it just kind of embodies the the Klopp era of we were one nil up. It was like the 93rd minute or something against, you know, United, your big rival. And instead of just kind of holding the ball, Allison, you know, punts one eighty yards to Salah who runs onto it, swipes off Dan James and slots it past De Gea and the celebration, you know, goes crazy and the whole stadium's just rocking. So just missed out, but um, did it did it miss out because perhaps a lot of people have been saying that that title doesn't count based on the fact that it was <laughs> one in front of uh, no it definitely counts definitely counts are you, are you um, sure yeah i'm 100 okay sure. all right yeah you'll never take that away from me no it just missed out just because i don't know i mean i had to sacrifice a couple goals for you know being in stadiums yeah. and seeing singles so um just barely missed out on the the top five list. Um, but yeah, I mean, hard not to get a Sala goal in there. Second one was 
Gerard versus Olympiacos. Now, this one missed out because I had no way to watch it live. I was also probably like eight years old, so I didn't really <laughs> like have access to, to Premier League soccer. But it was one of the goals that obviously always came up on any sort of soccer highlight reel I was watching on YouTube back in the day. Um, any sort of Gerard highlight reel I was watching. And honestly, just like a dream goal, right? Like ball bouncing out to you 25 yards out just set up perfectly for the volley and just striking one in front of the, the home crowd. And well, that was to, I can't remember. Was it to get them out of the group stage? I think it was like yeah. A- so this was actually selected by uh Vooj on episode two. And mm-hmm. yes, this was the final group stage game and Liverpool had to beat Olympiacos or if Olympiacos scored, Liverpool would yeah. have to win by two. Olympiacos went one nil up in the first half, Rivaldo with a free kick. And then, yeah, Gerard in the 86th minute with this unbelievable volley and the infamous Andy Gray, ah, oh, yeah. your beauty, yeah. uh, commentary. It's an incredible goal. I, I'm yeah. not surprised that you've mentioned it, um, but I also understand your reasons for not selecting it in terms of not being able to see it. Yeah. If I could have seen it live, it would have been probably number one on the list. Um, and I think the commentary definitely adds to it. Like... I don't know. Anytime you have a great goal, you got to have great commentary. And I pray to God they just have some good commentators for the World Cup and the the U.S. coverage. Hey, we'll I'm see. ready. If ESPN, I know. If, if ESPN calls, I'm I'm very ready and willing to work. Any 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 more? Last one. Yeah, I got one more. I got to give a shout out to my boy Chris Madden, the coldest to ever do it. This is. Chris Madden versus Brownsville Hannah. You're probably asking yourself, what the hell is this goal? Well, do yourself a favor and just go YouTube it because this is how legends are made. Chris Madden, <laughs> Texas 5A state championship 2013. Okay. Your Coppell Cowboys are in the state final game for the first time in, I don't know, let's call it 12 years or something. And we are down. So one, yeah, I think we're down one zero to Brownsville, Hannah, and lo and behold, I sent sent Calm the video just to watch his film on this. Uh, we're you know pumping balls in the box, gets cleared out. Chris picks up the ball, finds a pass to yours truly, who does an incredible Cruyff turn at the top of the box, and you know, gives quite a performance on the dive to to draw the referee into giving a foul. And Chris steps up, lines himself up, and just smacks one top corner with about a minute to go to tie up the game and send it to uh to extra time. So um there's a great picture of Chris, myself, our other best friend Jack and you know one of our other teammates just all jumping up in the air after Chris, you know, scored this goal and and yeah, I would love to to relive that. I guess that was the peak of my my soccer career. <laughs> um, I won't take offense that none of the years nah. playing with me made it. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I think this is what the only time that I'm gonna, well, the only time so far I'm gonna make an exception. I'm going to we're gonna put the video to this honorable mention in the podcast description as well. As oh my I've god! Forgotten to say that all of the goals that we've discussed here. There's a video link to all of them in the description of this podcast. There is an announcement at the start of this, but just in case you want to you want to watch these back or in future episodes, watch as we as we talk. They're all in the description, and for this one specifically, largely so that 
people not from the US can see what a Texas state championship <laughs> looks like. We're going to put the video link in there um, so you can go and see Chris's equalizer and then the eventual winner in overtime as well. Or should I say extra time for us English people out there as Kevin yeah. and Chris Coppell won their state championship in 2013? 2013. Yeah. Legends yeah. never die. Coppell fight never dies. Yeah, Kellen. we're basically immortal. Uh, Kellen, thank you so much for sharing your Desert Island goals with us. This has been a lot of fun. Great to chat with you as ever. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, we'll make sure that Kellen's social media is linked in the podcast description as well. So go follow Kellen. Make connections, oh, make friends. Yeah. Why not? Follow my Kellen, meme account. <laughs> yeah, we can put that in as well if you like. I don't think we uh, need to Kellen, put my, my socials in there, but we can put, <laughs> put my meme account in. <laughs> Kellen, thanks so much for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, cheerio, mate. All right. We'll see you next episode. Cheers.